You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore daddy. Sorry if you heard the bloop, but man, that was blasting in my ears. I wanted to turn that down just a tad. So today is PFF Day. I know you're all here just for the, the PFF stuff. I know you're just using me. I'm just a statistical piece of meat to you, aren't I? How dare you? I have feelings. Four of them, and they're all hurt. But we're going to do that, but uh, before we do, we got some other stuff, you know. Do want to take a gander at what's going on across the NFL, because it's getting kind of weird out there. Trying to survey the landscape as things are coming into focus. And, um, it's, you know, I keep saying it, but it's one of the things that's exciting, although annoying, to, you know, as far as being an NFL fan. For those of us that like things black and white, we like a nice rosy picture. We like being able to say things, letting them be definitive, so that in five weeks we can say the same thing and then say, see, I've been telling you this for a long time. Except the NFL keeps changing, and we got to change with it. For example, if the Bears don't chill out, they're going to mess up and win themselves a Super Bowl. <laughs> it's a slight exaggeration, but I'm going to keep saying that in hopes that the Bears believe it, keep their GM, keep their coach, and pay their quarterback. But seriously, you know, you, you got to give credit where it's due. Um... They are going on an absolute rampage in an effort to sneak into the playoffs, lose, make a bunch of bad decisions, and, um, you know, destroy any chance they had of drafting a solid backup quarterback. And by backup, I mean future Hall of Famer in the uh, first five to ten rounds. Because that's out the window now. That's done. You had a chance. You ruined it. Now you might as well take a swing at the playoffs and see what happens. But I will say the, the one big takeaway after watching Cleveland give up a uh, what seemed like it should have been a win uh, to the Baltimore Ravens, the amount of volatility just in the AFC North is kind of crazy to me. I mean, the Steelers at one point were a powerhouse, although it always felt a little bit like a paper dragon to me. And I've been saying all year, the offense is not that good. Um, and we saw them put up 15 points against the Buffalo Bills, which if this was last year, maybe would be forgivable because the Bills had a good defense. This year, the Buffalo Bills do not, and they only put up 15 points. Um, The defense, considering Buffalo's offense is pretty stout, giving up 26 to Buffalo is forgivable. It's not necessarily elite off uh, defense production, but, you know, in a normal day, that should be good enough to beat the Buffalo Bills. But the offense is so bad. The Cleveland Browns, I've been saying for a while, they, they can put up a billion points on anybody, but they can also put up three, and also their defense gives up a ton, as we just saw. Baltimore, I mean, I guess we got to look at it through the lens of how good are they with Lamar. I know several of their losses came without him and whatnot, but they still don't seem to be the 2019 Baltimore Ravens. So on, on one side of it, and of course you got Tennessee, which is pretty solid, and you got the Colts, who've got some potential, put up 44 against the Raiders. It just feels like a wrecking ball in the AFC. I mean, on one hand, it's like the only steady, consistently solid team is the Chiefs, and you just feel like they're going to coast into it, but man... You also realize any one of these teams can come out and just slug you right in the mouth. Baltimore absolutely can beat the Chiefs. Cleveland can beat the Chiefs. Tennessee could beat the Chiefs. Indy, eh. Pittsburgh technically does have the ability because the defense is so good. They're one of the few teams that has the ability to keep the Chiefs from scoring 30 points. They can keep them to, to, you know, 
low 20s if they're playing a real stout game. But now the question is, does the offense have the ability to get over 20 points on the Chiefs? I don't know. But it's going to be a pretty wild uh, AFC race. And I know that's true to some degree in the NFL for every team, but it just feels like everything is super crazy out there. I mean, in terms of the the high-end potential, I mean, the best defense is the Steelers. The the most high-flying offenses. Look at all the, again, the scores. Indy scored 44. Tennessee scored 31. Kansas City scored 33. Uh, the Ravens scored 47. Cleveland scored 42. I mean, the average score for the AFC playoff teams had to be like 38 points. It's crazy. Just kind of feel like you have a little bit of a better handle on what the NFC teams are. Packers are a, you know... 3124 is a pretty solid number for what you're getting with the Packers. Rams are sort of the anti-Packers. They're the number one defense, eh, number 15-ish offense. 24 to 3, I wouldn't say that's the norm for them, but that's kind of a good representation. Right? If you look at the Packers and the Rams games, that's kind of who the teams are. Packers are 3124, Rams are 24 to 3. New Orleans obviously is a somewhat of a fluke because they don't have Drew Brees. But with Drew, I mean, it's it's a stout offense and a stout defense. I mean, they they are in the conversation for top five offense and top five defense, which would make them unbelievably dangerous. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like the Vikings are going to get into the playoffs um, to play spoiler this year like they have the last two years in a row. So we're going to need somebody else to knock the Saints out of the playoffs. Uh, at the very least, we can hope for the Vikings to upset the, the Saints so that they don't get the number one seed. That would be good enough for me. The Seahawks are very similar to the Packers, but just to a lesser degree, right? Instead of number one and number 17, they're number three and number 18. So it's kind of like the, uh, you know, like a pair of twins, and you got like one twin that's like, yeah, I think I'm going to start lifting weights, and the other twin's like, meh. And so they're still twins. They still look similar, but one of them is jacked, and one of them is just a dude. The Packers are the jacked twin. And at the end of the day, when the two twins go out, and they're having a good time, one of the twins is going to get more attention than the other one, and we know which one that is. It's the Packers. Does that make sense? Again, they're similar, but the Seahawks are just to a lesser degree. It's also worth pointing out that the Seahawks were, um, I believe, the number one offense for a while. They've severely fallen off since about Week 10. Actually, it's not about Week 10. It's it's severe drop-off at Week 10. The defense has actually stepped up. There was a, I don't know what happened Week 10, but there was a hard switch. So at the start of the season, the offense was 38, 35, 38, 31, 27, 34, 37, 34. Every game, with the exception of the Vikings, was 30s. The defense, 25, 30, 31, 23, 26, 37, 27, 44, for the most part, given up like 30 points a game. The defense has gotten better. They give, they've given up since then 23, 21, 17, 17, and 3. The offense, however, has scored 16, 28, 23, 12, and then 40 against the Jets, but it's the Jets. But I mean, just... <sighs> It's kind of, the Seahawks are similar to the Steelers. The only difference is their strength is becoming their weakness. For the Steelers, the weakness is just becoming a bigger weakness. The Seahawks lost. This, is, this was the number one offense in all of football. They lost to the Giants when their garbage defense kept the Giants to 17 points. Right? <laughs> Imagine that. Your defense is not good. They hold a garbage team, a bad team, to 17 points, and your number one offense-ish, I mean, they probably weren't at that point, but top five offense can't win the game. The Eagles, they won, scoring 23 points. The only reason they won is because the Eagles are trash and the defense did their job. That's just crazy to me. They scored 16 on the Rams, which is somewhat forgivable because it's the Rams, but something about the Rams just broke their brain. They scored every, they scored 30 points every game except one, and it was 27 points. 
They scored 16 against the Rams, and they're just broken. I'm curious to dig into that a little more to find out what exactly happened, but it's it's not my concern right now. If we play the Seahawks in the playoffs, I'll look a little closer. I don't really care at this particular point in time. I know Russell's still there. I know DK's still there, so there shouldn't be any excuses. But getting back to the original point, you know what the Seahawks are. They have a scary offense and a defense that can't do anything, although to be continued because that seems to not be the case today. I don't know what's going on. Tampa Bay is kind of interesting because with the exception of a two-week stretch, weeks uh, five and six, they've never beaten a good team. They've never lost to a bad team, right? Week five, they played the Bears and lost. That's a bad team, and they lost. Week six, the Packers, they won. That's a good team, and they won. Weird little stretch in five and six. Otherwise, they lost to the Saints, the Saints, the Rams, and the Chiefs. They beat the Vikings, the Panthers, the Giants, the Raiders, the Chargers, the Broncos, the Panthers. Those are all bad teams. And so do I have a lot of faith in them doing anything in the playoffs? No. Can they win a playoff game? Sure. They beat the Packers once. But, I mean, this does not seem like a sound team. And every time I watch them, with the exception of that stupid Packers game, Tom Brady looks like hot garbage. I mean, I just tune in for a second, and it's it's every single time, I swear, it's a Tom Brady overthrow when I turn the game on. And then you look at the PFF score, and he's like, oh, yeah, he's a great quarterback. And, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers won by 40. Like, what? wait a minute. What? Am I just a, am I just a jinx? Like, I turn on the game and I force him to throw an incompletion, then I turn it off and he's like a superstar. But the point is, they don't really seem to have the DNA to win in the playoffs, which is they can win in the biggest games. They've won one big game against the Packers. They have not won a single other big game. Every other team they've beaten is like an 8-8 team or worse. I know what nobody's actually 8-8, but, you know, a 500 team or worse. I haven't looked at the actual numbers, but roughly. I mean, I don't think, I mean, Panthers aren't, Broncos aren't, Chargers aren't. Uh, Raiders, Raiders are seven and six, so they're technically above 800. That that's their other massive win outside of the Packers, I guess. I mean, look, it's not impossible, but it just yeah. And then the Arizona Cardinals, who are the final team right now, if the playoffs were today, I see them as just a team that plays spoiler. They're they're a team that's not going to win a lot of games, but it's not as clean as Tampa, right? Tampa beats all the bad teams; they lose to the good teams for the most part. The Cardinals are just like a coin flip every week, right? They're about a 500 team. doesn't really matter if it's a good team or a bad team. They might win, they might lose. You just don't know, right? The first two weeks of the season are perfect. They, they played four bad teams, went two and two. Then they beat the Jets and the Cowboys. There's two more wins. Then they play Seattle. You assume it's an automatic loss, and they beat them. Then they lose to Miami, but beat the Bills. Like, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. Then they lose to Seattle, who they already beat. They lose to the Patriots, who are not a good team. They lose to the Rams, which is understandable. And beat the Giants, because it's understandable. They've lost to a lot of bad teams. They've beaten a couple good teams. You just don't know. The default seems to be losing, right? Because like I said, everybody mostly plays bad teams. That's just the reality. Anybody that says, yeah, but they haven't played anybody yet, that's literally every team in the NFL. I mean, everybody's played somebody at this point, but everybody has mostly played bad teams because there's mostly just bad teams in the NFL. So the point is, if your record is 7-6 and six like the Cardinals, you've lost to several bad teams. And so, again, I don't see them as Super Bowl champions unless something drastically changes, and they're 1-3 um, the last four weeks. They're 2-4 uh, and four since their bye week in Week 8. If they can even muster a playoff berth, which, which at this point is questionable, they're probably going to lose to the Rams. The 49ers and Eagles are just up in the air. If they make it in, it's largely going to be because nobody catches up. I don't see them as legitimate. But again, it just it just feels more identifiable in the NFC. The AFC is just scary, man. I'm glad we're not going to see any of these teams until the Super Bowl because it just feels like 
like a loose cannon. I mean, like in, in the literal sense of what that means, like when a cannonball like comes loose in the deck of a ship and the ship is rocking back and forth and it's just destroying everything. That's these teams. I don't want to deal with the Browns who on one hand are just kind of a volatile garbage team and on the other hand will put up 50 points in your face just because. Like, nah, I'm good. I'll let you guys sort that out. I'll let you guys have that bloodbath. We'll have a nice, cool, calm, sophisticated playoffs over here in the NFC. May the best man win. You guys over there, you know, we're arm wrestling. You guys are knife fighting. Have fun. But I will say a couple things about the, the playoff. First of all, and I didn't read it, but somebody asked me to comment on it. BJ on Twitter sent me a uh, article from uh, what Rob Domofsky saying the Packers are the NFC favorites, but a surprise team could stop them, and he's talking about the Washington football team. First of all, my response to that is that this is an article that didn't need to be written. I mean, you could literally make a case for every team stopping the Packers. I mean, it has to just be like a clickbaity thing to pick the worst team and say the worst team could beat them. Of course they can. Well, they got a good defense, and that's what stops the Packers. Okay, all right, yeah, sure. You know, their offense sucks, though, right? And their defense is good, not great. Sixth overall offense, 24th over, or excuse me, sixth overall defense, 24th overall offense, 30th in yards. So, I, I don't know. On, on top of that, it's kind of silly because it's unlikely that we end up playing them. Because Washington technically is the number four seed, even though they would have probably the worst record, if they even make it in, because they won their division. Because the worst seeded team comes to Green Bay. So that would mean, first of all, Washington would have to win. But not only that, they'd probably have to win a couple times. I mean, I, I, it depends who wins. Like, it, So right now, the playoffs are the Packers would get the bye, the Saints would play the Cardinals, the Rams would play the Bucks, the Washington would play Seattle. So first, Washington would have to beat Seattle. Then the Rams and Saints would both have to win. That way, Washington would come to Green Bay, and then Washington could beat Green Bay. I mean, it's, again, it's just it's a weird thing to write. I mean, why not put, like, why the Bears could beat the Packers? I mean, they, they could. The way they're playing right now, I don't, I don't know that it's impossible that they sneak into the playoffs as it is. So, I, I mean, again, I, I don't know how else to comment on that other than to say it's, it's an article that never needed to be written. I mean, he's just, he has nothing better to do, I guess. As it stands, I, I think, assuming Drew Brees is back, the Saints will beat the Cardinals. So you'll have the Packers at the bye. The Saints will win. I believe Seattle will beat Washington. So that will nullify that whole thing and then it comes down to who's going to win between the Buccaneers and the Rams now based on what I said about the Buccaneers struggling to beat good teams the Rams are probably going to win that if that's the case Seattle comes to Green Bay which is ideal we were the ones that knocked Seattle out last time they seem to be slowing down quite a bit the offense is not doing very much they seem to get worse as the season goes on they're coming to Green Bay everything kind of works in our favor and then it would be Rams Saints in New Orleans, because New Orleans is the higher-seeded team. I'm assuming the Packers would beat Seattle. Rams-Saints would be a pretty good team, but I tend to think the Saints win only because, again, the Saints have a good offense and defense. The Rams have a good defense, but I, I have a feeling their offense would struggle against the Saints, especially at home. And then it comes down to the Packers beating the Saints again in Lambeau. Just saying it out loud, everything seems fairly realistic. And, and it also brings to light how important winning that number one seed is. I know we're all worried about the, the bye week and everything, but think about it from the other perspective. Let's say we get the number, we flip with the Saints. We're number two, the Saints get the bye. We have to beat the Cardinals, which I don't like because Cardinals are a team that plays spoiler. They got a mobile quarterback. It scares me. If we beat them, 
we go on to face the lowest seeded team. That could be the Buccaneers who beat us. If the Buccaneers beat the Rams, that's not great. Otherwise, it's the Seahawks or Washington, depending on who wins that game. Either of those would be okay, but we'd have to beat the Cardinals, then beat the Seahawks or Washington, then face the winner of the Rams-Saints game away. Either play LA in LA, which is a nightmare because we have to go to California, or the Saints in New Orleans, which is a nightmare. And if Tampa Bay wins, again, we got the Cardinals, then we have to play Tampa Bay, then the Seahawks would probably play New Orleans, and we'd have to play the winner of those two teams on their home turf. Again, not great. Either the Saints in New Orleans or Seattle in Seattle. The, the difference in my mind between the, the two pictures, one of which we get a bye and then we have to face you know two beatable teams in Green Bay, or we have to beat three teams and uh, two of them, or, or at least one of them, which is going to be the harder of the group, is going to be on the road. Just everything about that sucks. I don't like that at all. I don't like the fact that we're probably definitively going to be playing the Buccaneers because they are the right now the lowest seeded team. I mean, aside from the Cardinals, who we'd be facing first. So, again, it would be the Cardinals and then the Buccaneers and then somebody else on the road. That's just, that's horrible. We got to get that by, man. We got to stay on top. It, 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 it seems like not that big of a deal. And, you know, hey, you know, I don't, I just, not only is it a free automatic win, but just the scenarios and, and being able to play in Green Bay, I think, I just feel like it massively increases our odds. For, for I mean, for three different reasons. For, first of all, you get the free win. Second of all, you get the home field advantage, which is huge. And third of all, I just like the matchups better. Not that things can't reshuffle and maybe these things change, but as it stands right now, I would hate to be the number two. Being the number one is fantastic, especially since you got people from all over the country having to fly in. Fly in from Seattle. It's not a fun trip. I mean, there's always the risk of them coming out flat, but you don't need a buy for that. They can come out flat even without a buy. Point is, if this is a team that's going to win the Super Bowl, they're going to come ready to play. That's it. If they don't, then they're not ready, and it's just, it is what it is, I guess. I mean, they didn't they didn't have a bye when we lost in, to uh, the, the 49ers, right? Coming out flat doesn't always have to do correlate with a bye. So, I mean, a, again, just looking at the picture, you realize how unbelievably important getting that first round bye is. And by the way, the Saints aren't the only ones who are going to challenge us for that. The Rams are 9-4, and four, the Seahawks are 9-4. and four. These two teams are technically challengers for that number one spot. If we assume the Saints are going to fall to the Chiefs, Actually, let's let's play this out a little bit. Let's let's go ahead and do it. Let's have some fun. So the Seahawks, right now, you know, in the upcoming week, are playing Washington. That's a win for Seattle. Let's also look at some of the other NFC teams: the Bears, Vikings. Let's say the Bears keep up this pace and they beat the Vikings. The Packers beat Carolina. Tampa Bay's playing um, Atlanta. That should be a win for Tampa. Arizona has um, the Eagles. That should be a win for them. The Rams are playing the Jets. That should be a win for them. But let's say the Saints fall to the Chiefs. So they got that loss. In that case, it doesn't look like a whole lot changes. In fact, nothing changes. But we've got Seattle at 10-4, and four, the Rams at 10-4, and four, and New Orleans at 10-4. and four. So now it's a foot race with the Packers at 11-3. and three. So now, let's say the Packers lose to Tennessee, let's just say. The Saints fall to the Vikings. The Bears beat the Jaguars. Tampa's going to beat the Lions. We'll have the Cardinals beating the 49ers. Uh... Panthers beat Washington, but it doesn't super matter unless some of these other teams catch up. They can pretty much be as garbage as they want and still win. Now we've actually got a matchup between L.A. and Seattle. I'm going to say the Rams win this one. And the the good thing about this scenario is Seattle and and L.A. play each other. So only one of them at this point is going to be 11-4, able to be tied with the Packers if they lose. 
And according to this simulator that I'm using, the Packers still stay ahead. I don't know if this thing's glitching or if that's right, but that's huge if they beat all the tiebreakers, which would mean the only way the Packers fall out of this spot is if they fall too. I mean, unless the, the Saints go undefeated, but the Packers would have to lose to the Bears and actually have a worse record. And the Rams are facing the Cardinals, which is not a guarantee. I mean, they've got, you know, Seattle, you've got uh, whatever, the the, Ram, uh, the Cardinals. But the, the kind of unfortunate thing here is if the Bears are kind of, they continue this, and, and again, I'm, I'm maybe this is all overblown or whatever, but they've put up like 30-some points in back-to-back games. Let's just say they win. Not only do they knock us out of that spot and the Rams take the number one seed, but we face the Bears the very next week. Because we would be the number two seed, they would be the number seven seed. They would sneak in ahead of the Cardinals, who just lost to the Rams, and have the opportunity to, to play the Packers back-to-back. However, again, if the Packers win, they keep that number one seed, and it's good to go again. I don't know that this is 100% correct, but according to this, the Packers win all the tiebreakers between these, uh, the Saints, the Rams, and Seattle. I think the one interesting little tidbit on this is... The Bears game is actually even more important because if I flip the simulator, because the Bears are an NFC team, the Titans are an AFC team. If the Packers beat, let's say they beat, uh, who do they got here? The Panthers and the Titans, but lose to the Bears, then they suddenly lose the tiebreaker because they lost to an NFC team. So if the Rams win out and we win the next two weeks and lose to the Bears, we still lose that number two seed and the Bears potentially could still be in the spot assuming they win out. In this scenario, you've got, we would have to beat the Bears, that's in Lambeau, who presumably we just lost to. Then we would face the winner of Tampa and Washington, which would probably be Tampa, so that stinks. We would have to face a team we just lost to. Then beat Tampa, who we've already lost to. And then face uh, either L.A. in L.A., or if Seattle or New Orleans beats them, then it would be one of those teams coming to Green Bay. So, um... In terms of order of importance, the Carolina and Chicago games are right now seen as the easier games, but they're also vastly more important. We can beat those two teams and lose to Tennessee and we get the number one spot, basically guaranteed, unless New Orleans wins out, which is why we are huge Chiefs fans and uh, maybe good, maybe Vikings fans just for good measure. Plus it hurts their draft position and it doesn't really help them at all, so why not? So we need one of those teams to beat those guys down. Um, again, otherwise, I mean, the Titans. I'm not. I don't. I don't want to say the Titans game do, doesn't matter because, of course, you want your team to win. But um, again, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really affect anything unless the Saints win out. That's the only reason that game would even matter. Right now, if we assume the Saints drop one more, which is fair to assume, the only games that matter are this week and the Bears game, and that's it. So that and being healthy. Anyways, why don't we take a break right here? In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. 
Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, let's take a look-see at uh, what PFF had to say. Um, we're going to kind of skim it the way we have been recently, but uh, give you sort of the, the bullet points. And again, if you got some questions, you can feel free to reach out. Depending on the complexity of it, I might answer it. I might just ignore you. Some people hit, hit me up and they want me to write them a research paper or something like, dude, no, just just 200 bucks. Go buy it and look. But offensively, and I've, I've mentioned this on Twitter this was maybe their best performance ever, and I'd have to look at it, but the reason I say that is even if it isn't the most good players, it's 100,000% the least amount of bad players I've ever seen. Um, in fact, there wasn't technically any bad players in this entire offense. The only guy with a below-average grade was Dominique Daphne, and his grade was a 52.7. He actually had a 72 overall pass-blocking grade. He only played 12 snaps. And it was just a poor run blocking grade that that ended up getting him a below average grade. One below average guy, and that's it. Juwan Winfrey got a 60 because he only played one snap. Tavon Austin was in the positive with his four snaps. I mean, I just I don't remember ever seeing anything like this. It's just incredible. I mean, and I, I'll I'll take that any day of the week. Everybody just doing their job, even if it's not elite, just nobody was bad. That's incredible to me. Obviously, these were to varying degrees, but David Bakhtiari with the highest overall grade, 91.2 elite. Not only that, one of the most exciting things is the amount of guys that did a great job run blocking, which has been a struggle for a while. So he had a 90.3 pass blocking grade, a 93 overall run blocking grade. We'll get to the blocking stuff, but I just, the pass blocking wasn't as good as it has been, which I kind of commented on uh, either here or Facebook page uh, thing, whatever. I don't know. I don't remember. I say a lot of things a lot of the time. Sometimes it's to myself in my car, so who knows. But I didn't feel like the pass blocking was that great this week, especially when you consider Detroit has no pass rushers, and it felt like Rodgers was under duress quite a bit. PFF seems to be somewhat corroborating that, but again, we'll, we'll get to that. As far as overall grades, second highest was Marquez Valdez-Scantling. I will say it is a tad annoying when you set out tweets like that and somebody out there says, oh, I thought MVS was terrible. Granted, you might have a case, but him being good once, that's not a case. And I'm not saying that's the reality, but it's like, this isn't, I don't think he's ever been the second highest graded guy. I don't think he's ever had a higher grade than Devontae ever. 
So I promise you, anybody that said that they had a problem with MVS wasn't talking about this week. <laughs> it's just, I just, it just, it just bothers me. You can make a case, but you got to make a case that makes sense. Not, hey, last week you said he's not good, but this week he had a good week. How do you explain that? Well, I don't know because I can't see the future. <laughs> what? Anyways, um, after that was Aaron Rodgers, followed by Mr. Elton Jenkins. Very good to see. He didn't actually have that good of a pass blocking grade, but was dominant as a run block. Those were the uh, three guys that were in the 80s. Otherwise, we had several in the 70s, i.e. good players. That would be Robert Tunyon, Mercedes Lewis, Rick Wagner, which is uh, good to see because he hasn't been up there very often. Lucas Patrick, same could be said for him, and Jamal Williams. That's it. Yes, that does mean Devontae didn't make it. Don't know. Don't ask me. I'm just telling you. Again, nobody was graded poorly. I'm just telling you he didn't make the cut into the 70s this week, which is one of the few times this entire year, which is the other thing about PFF. It's like, People want to say, well, they're so stupid. How could you not say Devontae had a good game? He's obviously elite. Well, I know. That's why they graded him as the number one wide receiver in football this week. Clearly, they saw something different this week, didn't they? What was it? I don't know, man. You gotta go watch. They don't have a Q&A. Well, they technically do, but they never answer my questions in their Discord. I always ask them that kind of stuff. Like, why did you put this? And they, they don't answer. But again, it was something. I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter to me. He had a great game. Everybody had a great game. Not a single person here did bad. So if I didn't list the person, just know that they did fine. Um, In terms of pass blocking, um, it wasn't all bad. In fact, the only guys that were bad would be Jamal Williams and then Robert Tanyan. Again, horrific pass blocking grade. I know there's that one clip of him, like, pushing a guy from the side and he fell over and everyone's freaking out about it. I mean, that's cool and all, but, you know, whatever. But I believe this is, like, the second week in a row he's had just a horrifically bad pass blocking grade. But, obviously, a decent receiver and uh, his run blocking grade was through the roof. But uh, David Bakhtiari was elite. Otherwise, we had Billy Turner, Aaron Jones, Mercedes Lewis, Rick Wagner, and Dominique Daphne as the solid pass blocker. Run blocking, again, David Bakhtiari was elite. Uh, Tunyon, Jenkins, uh, Mercedes, those guys were very good in the 80s. And then Rick Wagner and Lucas Patrick were good in the 70s. Everybody else was 60s, with the exception of Dominique Daphne in the 50s and MVS in the 40s. In terms of the statistics getting away from the grades, zero sacks, zero hits. There were five hurries. Three of them were credited to Mr. Rick Wagner. One of them was Elton Jenkins. One of them was Jamal Williams. There were also um, three penalties in the game credited to Bakhtiari, Patrick, and MVS. I will say this, um, and this has been kind of consistent since throughout, but I really think if Aaron Rodgers gets the MVP, he needs to do something super special for his offensive line. Uh, I've, I've talked about this in the past, about how every quarterback is better when they're not under pressure. I think for Aaron Rodgers, it's a little bit more so. His grades this year have been actually really, really, really horrible when he's under pressure. For example, this week, 87.6 overall grade with no pressure, 54.1 while under pressure. Granted, again, it's only five times he was pressured, but his grades have been really bad when he's under pressure. He's just never been under pressure this year. So... If this were a different year and his pressures were doubled, I don't know if he's even in the MVP conversation. But um, 24 of 28 for 277 yards, 9.9 average, three touchdowns, no interceptions, with no pressure. NFL passer rating of 143.6. His adjusted completion percentage, when you get rid of all the other stuff, is an 85.7 because there were no drops, batted passes, throwaways, any of that. While under pressure, he was 2 of 5 for 13 yards, 2.6 average. Two throwaways, a 47.9 passer rating when targeted, 66.7 adjusted completion percentage. Kind of bad. And again, that's normal 
there, there are only a handful of quarterbacks that seem to do okay under pressure. Rodgers is not one of them. Lots of them have severe issues while under pressure. And I'm, I'm sure if you really analyze it, you'll find a lot of quarterbacks that are very, very good that um, don't necessarily get pressured a lot. I mean, Tom Brady comes immediately to mind. The guy stands in the pocket forever. I don't know if that's, that's not necessarily the case anymore. He's starting to get more pressure, but thinking back to New England or whatever, clearly having a lack of pressure is going to help your overall statistics and grades and everything else. Looking at the running backs, we already kind of talked about the um, the statistics and whatnot. However, elaborating on it, Aaron Jones, again, 69 yards, 4.6 average. He converted four first downs, had one carry of 10 or more yards, 3.07 yards after contact. Jamal Williams, 38 yards on 10 attempts, which is 3.8 per attempt. He, however, converted three first downs, which, again, on 10 attempts is pretty solid. 3.10 yards after contact, almost identical to Aaron Jones, his longest being nine yards. By the way, um, on 10 carries, Jamal Williams did not have any avoided tackles. On 15 attempts, Aaron Jones had four avoided tackles. He does a very good job with that. As for the receivers, kind of strange. Uh, again, it seemed like MVS and Devontae kind of switched places. MVS had a higher grade than Devontae did. Devontae had a higher yards per reception than Marquez. Marquez is one of the highest in the NFL uh, consistently, like in or near the 20s in terms of yards per reception. He had 14.2 in this game, um, which I, I honestly believe is a positive. Um, he went from being a very one-dimensional, maybe gets that one big catch a game, to starting to become a more well-rounded receiver. I don't think there are too many elite number one wide receivers that are getting about 18 yards per reception. Generally, those are the guys who get one or two big passes a game. But if you want to be a consistent, you know, getting six targets, six receptions, 85 yards and a touchdown, those receptions, yards per reception is going to come down a little bit. Um, obviously, Devontae dominated yards after the catch, considering that first reception that went for a touchdown. Uh, you also had, and this is, again, very cool stat that um, really shows the growth of Marquez, at least in this one game, and hopefully that continues. But uh, Devontae actually converted only three first downs in this game. Tunyon, three first downs. MVS converted six first downs. And I just, I don't even remember that. What an unbelievable asset that is. Yeah, we, we'll see. we got to see this consistently. This is probably the first game I remember something like that happening, where he went from being just this dynamic deep threat to like just a solid receiver in this game. But uh, passer ratings, MVS was a 158.3, Devontae 141.7, Tunyon 136.3, Equinemius a 118.8. Um, everybody else was under 100, but having four guys over 100. An average passer rating of 137.9 across all these receivers here. Solid, man. It's a solid group. Flipping over to defense, it was a completely different story. Almost the exact opposite of the um, the offense. You had, I would say, kind of like a third that were good, a third that were mediocre, and a third that were terrible. That's roughly where it is. Um, and it's sort of uns upsetting because, and, and I even saw this, somebody put this on Twitter, where it's like, how do you explain so many guys playing so well, yet the defense not doing well. And I think this kind of explains it. Because you have some guys that are just, first of all, you have some guys that are just situationally doing terribly. And you got some guys that are just playing terribly in general. But starting off with the guys who are good, Vernon Scott was the highest graded player. You probably heard Kenny Clark because they had a minimum number of snaps. But Vernon Scott deserves credit. He played 15 snaps. That's not nothing. Uh, 13 snaps in coverage and had a 90 overall coverage grade, 90.3 overall grade. Two targets, one reception for one yard. He also had one tackle, which was a stop. A stop is a tackle that is a negative for the offense. The second highest graded player was not Kenny Clark. It was Kamal Martin. Um, Kamal, I believe, is like the 14th highest graded linebacker in football right now uh, as far as linebackers that have at least 100 snaps. 
he's just he's just doing a good job. I think he's the second highest, or maybe third, if you don't have any. Um, if you don't look at snap counts at all, I think he's the third highest graded rookie linebacker. If you make the number a hundred snaps minimum, he's the second highest graded linebacker. He's just he's just doing a good job. I mean, I know he's not perfect. I know he's not you know ever going to be like this elite dynamic do everything linebacker. But if he can just be a solid guy doing his job like he has been, I mean, it's just he's solid, man. I mentioned how to start the season he had, you know, two kind of bad games. So he had a real good game against Houston, then bad against Minnesota and Jacksonville. The last four games he's played, which have been the last four games in a row, he had one mediocre game that was against Philly. Otherwise, his grades were 78, 76, and 83, which was his best grade of the year. He had one pressure in the game. We saw it. He came in like a heat-sicking missile and just knocked out Stafford. He actually has a pressure in every game with the exception of three. He has four pressures on the season, including one sack, one hit, and two hurries. He has 14 tackles, three assists, um, three missed tackles, 10 stops, which on 14 tackles is pretty crazy. And as far as in the passing game, which he has been in coverage 57 times, he's been targeted four times. Three of those were caught for 29 yards. He's not given up a touchdown. He does not have an interception or a pass breakup, 94.8 passer rating when targeted. I mean, he's just solid. I just, you know, I've been right about a lot of stuff. I was very wrong about Kamal Martin. I had zero expectations. I refused to even do a breakdown video of him because I couldn't find anything good with him. Now, a lot of people really liked him. Again, I just, you know, I'm not a scout. I don't pretend to be. I'm a fan that watches football, that likes football, and I, I, I watch it basically kind of casually as a fan. Everything I know is, is no different than anybody else that just watches football and appreciates certain things. I just didn't see it with Kamal, and I, th- I think I might have missed the boat on this one. By the way, the Brian Gutekunst draft picks, I mean, if, if you're not on board yet, I don't know what you're doing. I mean, we haven't seen the first round pick. We haven't really seen the second round pick, although, again, he's graded out well when he's been on the field. We saw DeGuara, and he started over Jace day one and was making an impact. We've seen Kamal. He's one of the better linebackers in football. We've already got one of the um, one of the offensive linemen pushing to start, John Runyon. Last year's crop, you got Rashawn and Darnell making a big push. I mean, you could argue Rashawn Gary is the best pass rusher on this team right now. I know a lot of people would push back on that, say Zadarius, look at all the sacks and all that. But as far as pressures, I think Rashawn is actually the highest on the team. Savage has been volatile, but he's also shown flashes of being massively elite. Elton Jenkins is a very good offensive lineman. I mean, the amount, the hit rate for these picks is out of control. And again, if you're talking trash about uh, Jordan Love and, I mean, the first two picks, I mean, this is the impact the fifth round pick is making, and you're saying that Jordan Love was a bad, I'm just saying, you might be setting yourself up for talking trash about the next great quarterback in the NFL. Maybe cool it. And by the way, you're also talking trash about the second round pick, who's more of a freak than Derrick Henry, whose head coach is the guy that made Derrick Henry who he is. Do you remember when Derrick Henry was drafted and everybody made fun of him, with the exception of me? I didn't have a podcast, so I can't corroborate it. But I said I would have taken Derrick Henry over Ezekiel Elliott, whatever. Everybody laughed at me. Who's laughing now? But the guy was a number two. Nobody knew what to do with the guy. He was just a big, plotting nobody. Matt LaFleur goes over there, makes him just the number one guy. Get this other guy out of here. This is my guy. And by midseason, he was the number one running back, and he has been ever since. The guy that coached up Derrick Henry, that built the system, that Der- the reason Derrick Henry's getting paid as much money as he's getting paid is because of what Matt LaFleur did in that system. His number two overall pick is Derrick Henry on steroids, hopefully not literally. 
And you guys want to just act like it was a bad... Okay, I'm just saying. Okay. You want to doubt it, you go ahead. Anyways, the number three guy uh, was Kenny Clark. Did not grade out super positively as a run defender, but did grade out positively as a pass rusher. The stats weren't spectacular. Four pressures on 44 attempts is less than 10%. It's still less than you'd like it to be, but again, PFF liked what he did against the guy in front of him, which ultimately is all that matters. I mean, it's again, it's possible to win and just not get to the quarterback in time to even generate a pressure, I suppose. Um, he did have one sack and three hurries on the game. Overall, the pressures were not good. We'll get to that, but uh, disappointing. I don't think anybody hit 10%. Next highest was Darnell Savage. Great to see him continue that. I mean, he's been real up and down. Um, his grade last week was actually really low, which I know shocked people because he had that uh, interception and everybody's excited about it. But that being a blip, he's basically had really good games the last four weeks. And again, if we assume Philadelphia was a bad week, and that week he had uh, three targets, one reception, and one pick, uh, you know, I think we'll take that. And you also got so here's the thing with Darnell Savage. Let's just look at his grades. You want to talk about growth? Let's just look at the grades for a second. I know some of you don't care about it, but it it's it matters. Up through week nine, and, and keep in mind his rookie grade was a 66, 38, 55, 66, 58, 64, 40, and 58. His highest was a 66.6, which was his average in, a, in his rookie year. Real rough start. He had a 30, a 40, three 50s, and uh, three 60s, I guess, or two 60s. Week 10, he has a 67.6. Not great, but his highest grade of the season. Then, since then, 75, 96, 37, I know, and then 77. Basically, like, five games in a row... If we just want to say that 37 is kind of a fluke and coverage-wise he did great anyway, whatever. I mean, he's just, he's been doing some special stuff. This is serious growth from him. And again, that 37 scared me because it was only like two games where he did really, really well. I mean, obviously that week 12 game was about basically perfect. But the fact that it was one bad game and then he's back to being better than he has been, I'll take it, right? I mean, if we're talking 2021, let's just say he's a guy that's consistently 70s, 80s, a couple 90s mixed in, and he has a game that's in the 30s or 40s once in a while. I'll take that. That's most guys. Aaron Rodgers is that way. Aaron Rodgers is a guy that's consistently 70s, 80s, a couple 90s, and he might throw a 40 in there once in a while. And we're probably going to lose that game because he's a quarterback. Darnell Savage is a safety. You don't see him. He gets one pick. You assume he did great. He has a 30. Nobody cares because in our mind, he did great. And we won the game, so who cares? 100% I'll take that. By the way, he's 23 years old, and he's got the ceiling. I I talked about Kamal Martin. I don't know that he has that elite ceiling because athletically, I mean, he's limited. Darnell Savage has no limits, zero limits, and his 96.3 grade proved that. By the way, that um, the, the, the bad grade game, three targets, one reception for 41 yards. This past game, one target, one reception for four yards. So let's let's just look at the stats for a second. To start the season, and these were the, you know, not great grades or whatever. One target, one reception, 37. One, one, 19. One, one, 13. Three, one, 16. One, one, six. One, one, 16. One, one, 36. Consistently only targeted once. He gives up the reception, and he's giving up, you know, between 10 and 35 yards. He had zero interceptions, zero pass breakups, and one touchdown in that stretch. After that, two targets, zero receptions, two pass breakups. One target, zero receptions, one pass breakup. Two targets, zero receptions, two interceptions. Then the Philly game, three targets, one reception, 41 yards, and a pick. So even in that game, he got a pick. And then this pass game is the first time he didn't get a pass breakup or an interception since week uh, eight, but he only allowed one reception for four yards. I'm just saying, man. 
a, a switch flipped at around week nine. Crazy. Awesome. Excited. Not a moment too soon either. After Savage, you had Jair Alexander. I've mentioned his grades have been slipping, so it's real good to see him get uh, the rebound. He obviously had a great game. He was all over the place. Four targets, two receptions for only nine yards. Uh, he had one pass breakup, a 56.3 passer rating when targeted. Just a great game. Great tackling grade. You know, I mean, he, he didn't grade out as a lead or anything, but just solid. And that's that's exactly what he was. Um, then Zadarius Smith is our final guy grading out in the 70s. Um, had a good pass rush grade against the, the stats were pretty terrible. But for whatever reason, PFF said he actually did a pretty decent job, so I'll take that. Uh, only two pressures on 47 attempts, which is really, really pretty horrible. <laughs> and both of those were hurries. He had no sacks or hits, so take it for what you will. For those of you that say the grades are stupid and I don't care, then I guess you have to say Zadarius had a trash game. So pick your poison, I guess. Of the guys, so there's a bunch of averages. There's Kingsley, Will Redmond, Oren Burks, Tyler Lancaster, Rashawn Gary, and Adrian Amos in that order. Those are guys from high 60s to, let's say, high 50. Everybody else was bad. Um, so Adrian Amos had a 56.9. That's sort of, you know, below average. Not great. Five targets, four receptions, 39 yards. We saw some good tackles, but there were also some bad plays. No question about it. It drops from a 50, let's call it a 57, to a 45.8. That's a massive drop-off. And again, there's a there's about a third of this defense that is just flat-out bad. And it starts with Dean Lowry. I know he had his one sack, and that's cool. That's one sack. It was his only pressure on 23 attempts. Statistically, it's not great. PFF overall wasn't impressed. He had one tackle on the game. Two stops, obviously the one tackle and the one sack constitute two stops. Otherwise, nothing. Behind him at a 45.7 was Preston Smith. Zero sacks, zero hits, zero hurries. He only had, um, oh no, he had 35, 34 attempts. So that's a lot. He didn't get a single pressure in the game. Terrible. He had one tackle. It's, it's all he did. Two targets, one reception, 10 yards. So, I mean, I don't know. It's just, there's nothing here. Uh, Chandon Sullivan, we saw get picked on a little bit. He was at a 43.2. So 40s in my vernacular lingo, whatever, is bad. He's on the low end of that spectrum. Uh, two targets, two receptions for 36 yards, 118.8 pass rating when targeted. Then you get into the real bad. We drop from 43 to 38, and you get Christian Kirksey. Kirksey uh, rushed the passer three times, didn't get home once. He had three tackles and one miss, which is a horrific ratio. He was targeted five times. All five of them were caught for 30 yards. He also gave up a touchdown, 131.3 passer rating when targeted. Now listen, and I know you guys are tired of hearing me talk about PFF or whatever, but the one thing I've always said about why I stand by them is because if you have a good metric, it's predictive. If you only have something that can tell you what happened in the past and not in the future, it's not very good. The fact that I said, and and listen, I could just pretend I don't even have PFF and just make it seem like I'm some kind of a genius, but the reason I said Zadarius would regress, the reason I said Preston would regress, the reason why I said you know, um, what's his name? The Vikings pass rusher was not going to be very good, despite the fact that everybody said he's very good. This is why, man, because it's all mapped out for me. Because not everything is about the, the, the raw statistics and sacks and all these things and all these ridiculous garbage numbers. You can look at, uh, you know, the way things are going. You can look at trajectory, the fact that, you know, the, st- the stats may be somewhat steady, but the grades are declining, or the fact that they had a, a freakish anomaly of a year, so you know there's going to be a crash coming. I told you Christian Kirksey would not be a good pickup. And again, I'm the only one. Everybody else told you he's a very good linebacker. He's a great coverage linebacker. When he's healthy, my favorite phrase in the world, when he's healthy, he's a great linebacker. Bull. 
I gave you the stats. I gave you the grades. I told you this wasn't going to be a good pickup, and it hasn't been. I didn't get lucky. I just read it to you. So again, I mean, if you want to hate on it, fine. Turn the show off. We won't discuss PFF, but I'm telling you, you're missing the meat of it. There's a reason why I get a lot of stuff right. Because I know how to read. (laughs) That's it. Now, I didn't know he was going to be this bad, but it just, it's, I mean, it's, it is what it is, man. You can't say I didn't warn you. You can't say I didn't tell you. Then after Christian Kirksey, we got three guys that were just abysmally putrid, horrible, whatever. I kind of run out of adjectives once we get down past the 30s, and I just start calling people really terrible names. Um, But at 17 was uh, Kevin King, 29.5 overall grade, 28.5 coverage grade, six targets, four receptions for 59 yards, four tackles, and two missed tackles, which is a terrible ratio, which is why he had a 34 tackling grade. Look, I mean, I, I, I'm i not going to come down too hard. Some some people still give me, you know, a hard time about how I'm super anti cat I haven't been this year. I, I'm not as concerned with him and what he's done. I think he actually has had a decent year in comparison to what he's done in the past. Um, so this, this, in my opinion, is somewhat of a blip. I mean, I, I know he's not an elite corner. He never has been. Anybody that says, you know, gives me the whole when he's healthy, he's a top. No, he's not. But it's not the worst thing in the world. Well, technically, this is his lowest grade. <laughs> well, second lowest since his rookie year, I guess. But I mean, statistically, it hasn't been that bad. Statistic, I mean, 275 yards. Kevin King and Jair had games last year giving up like 100 plus yards. His worst game was this week at 59 yards. I'll take that. 59 yards and no touchdown. I mean, it's it's not great, and you want it to be better. And and that's those are the kinds of little things that that are moving the sticks, right? Critical third downs when you need a stop, and he gives up that first down. It's annoying. But I'm, I'm cutting him some slack because, again, last year you saw some real bad stuff. And I haven't really seen that much this year. However, you know, games like this are inexcusable. After that, you had Randy Ramsey. Obviously, we know he had a somewhat of a rough game, including that penalty. He only played nine snaps, but uh, nine snaps, you don't get any pressures, and you end up getting a penalty. It's, it's just not going to grade out very well. And then our lowest-graded guy, who is consistently one of the lowest, I mean, it's always our linebackers with the exception of Kamal Martin, it's Chris Barnes. Chris Barnes had a 28.6 overall grade. His tackling grade wasn't bad, but a 45 run defense grade, 54 pass rush, and a 30.6 coverage grade, four targets, four receptions, 53 yards. That ain't going to cut it anywhere. I think I saw somebody mention how Chris Barnes kind of took over, and he may be getting more snaps, something to keep an eye on because Christian Kirksey's been so bad. Um, Chris Barnes started off hot, 82 overall grade, 72. Here's his grades, by the way. Started off great. 82, 72, 62, that's rough. Then it goes 51, 30, 44, 42, 40, 28. This is a downward spiral to enough is enough. I don't know why he's been giving so much snaps recently. I really have no idea. And and Kamal Martin had 12 snaps. Chris Barnes had 39. In fact, Chris Barnes has had more than 12 snaps every single game he's played. 15, 15, 17, 38, 56, 27, 49, 23, 39. He's terrible. Kamal Martin had 29, 42, 13, 23 snaps. Since then, it's been 9, 16, and 12. I mean, it, clearly they just find him as a situational guy, and he does great in those situations, but um, I, I don't know, man. It's 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 The linebackers outside of Kamal Martin are beyond terrible. That's just the way it is. Finally, looking at special teams because it matters, I'm trying to find one glimmer of hope, and I can't find one. There was not one person with a good special teams grade. Go figure. The highest grade was Jawan Winfrey with a 64.5, which is not good. We have three guys with semi-bad grades, Ty Summers, Chris Barnes, and Elton Jenkins. Again, linebackers coming through in the clutch. 
Now, that doesn't re uh, include the kicking and returning. Those are separate things. But obviously, Mason Crosby, fantastic raid um, because he made everything, including a massive 50, I don't know if it was 58 or 57. It was different depending on what you looked at. But a massive field goal. J.K. Scott was graded out as average, which is pretty normal for punters that don't punt hardly ever. But uh, 50.5 yards per attempt is crazy. I, even on two punts, I don't know how he doesn't have way better than this. He, he kicked a 57-yard kick, which was his longest. His average was 50.5 yards per attempt with a 5.15 hang time. He was kicking the living daylights out of that ball. <laughs> Jeez. Just so we know, the best average hang time in the NFL right now is Jack Fox at 4.58. His average in that game was 5.15. That's stupid. That's, that's, and, and with over 50 yards, that's ridiculous. I mean, both of those independently are ridiculous. Having them together, f massive hang time with distance on it, that's stupid. Then obviously the return grades, there was really nothing. Jamal Williams had one kickoff return. Tavon Austin had one punt return. They didn't do anything with it, so there you go. But anyways, that's it. Again, offense was great as far as consistency and just not making mistakes. Defense, it's, a, it's I mean, it's kind of all over the place. There's a lot of things that are promising and exciting. There are a lot of things that are just a nightmare. And I think it's that's where you get that good blend of, I don't know if this is a really great defense or a really trash defense or a mediocre defense. Like, I can't label this defense because I don't know what it is. Because if you give it any one label, you sound like an idiot. If you say it's a terrible defense, you look at some of the players, you look at some of the plays, you look at the score totals, you look at the stats, and it's like, where do you see a terrible defense? Like, well, dude, I mean, just, I don't know. If you say it's a great defense, you look at some of the plays, you look at some of the players, you look at the, some of the score totals, you, and it just, you sound like an idiot. So it's, you know, again, the biggest thing we need from them is just more consistency. We have great players. We need guys to be great more consistently, and, we'll, and they'll be fine. But anyways, I got to get going. You folks have yourselves a fantastic day. I will talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Bye-bye.